You are listening to Radio Albion. Welcome to another edition of the Orthodox Nationalist. This is going out uh, probably the week of the 12th of February, 2024. Um, as always, this is Matthew Raphael Johnson. And um, today, of course, I have to give the ritual requests for donations and, of course, support for uh, my Patreon page. Um and thanking everyone for their support. And um, I know I have a few of you to get back to who sent me messages. It's it's not that I haven't responded. It's either that I keep forgetting or something um, equally eccentric. Um, and so please don't don't uh, don't be upset by by that fact. Today we're going to cover a topic that I've never mentioned before. Recovered before. I may never have mentioned it at all before. And that is the Holy Fool, Yudhadevi, um, coming from um, the Russian root for crippled uh, or ugly, in salos in, in Greek, which among other things means deranged. The fool for Christ's sake. Sometimes the holy fool, sometimes um, holy foolishness. This is a very eccentric group of saints. I believe there's about 40 officially canonized, but there are many others locally venerated. It was particularly substantial in Russia, especially in northern Russia, and it is confined almost entirely, to the Orthodox Church, which is a question in and of itself. The concept of making the wisdom of the wise foolish is a regular theme, especially in the letters of, of Paul. We are fools for Christ's sake. You are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. And both of those from 1 Corinthians. And there are many others, both in the Old and in the New Testament. So how do we describe this, this phenomenon, though? Holy foolishness goes back, really, from the uh, to the dawn of asceticism in the Orthodox world. But there's a lot of ways to describe this. this is a systematic phenomenon. It has to be understood that way. These are people who, in protest of a corrupt world, act as insane as they can. They're perfectly sane, of course. But what they're acting out 
and their craziness is a symbolic representation of what it is they're uh, condemning. It's a voluntary submission to insult. It's the removal of any esteem. One of their big targets is external sanctity. They don't tend to like externals. They don't like the externals because it's in the phenomenal world. There's one thing that I would say about the Yerodivia is that they live in a noumenal world, not in a phenomenal world. In Russia, they were the holiest of the holy. In Russia, especially in the, in the Moscow era, it took root tremendously. They made themselves devoid of even, of even a sliver of human dignity. They were homeless. They would scream and yell. They'd throw things. They can be violent. They could use foul language. They interacted with the most vile and hated of, of the society even going so far as to sin in public, to mock the pretensions, the, the, the Phariseeism of so many. Of course, the more institutionalized the church becomes, the less important the fools become. They were, at the best of times, they were barely tolerated. But in the Moscow era, in Russian history, um, no one could touch them. They confronted czars, they confronted wealthy men, they confronted the oligarchy in Novgorod. Novgorod really was the locus of foolishness in Russia. They were free from even elementary responsibilities of society. They rejected its form and its content. Many of you have seen that, that meme of the guy putting on clown makeup. And in the process of doing that, he's saying something stupid like, you know, immigrants are wonderful, we're going to be enriched, they have no connection to crime. And as he's saying these things, he's putting clown makeup on. That's a, a, a mild expression of what we're talking about here. These things go against logic and facts in every way. So what would be the point of repeating those facts and that logic back to them. So how do you communicate with them? You communicate with them through laughter, through parody, through mockery. They're to, they're to rock the world of these people who think that they're safe because they go to the rituals and they understand, you know, people like us. There's nothing good about secular society. They are the enemy of that false humility, the paradoxical situation where someone's bragging about how humble they are and what a great sinner they are. And of course, they don't, they don't really mean it. They're also an enemy of words. Words are so, for the most part, so empty. They're always changing. You could make them, you know, it's, it's, you know, people will take whatever they want out of the New Testament, the Old Testament. They'll keep what's convenient and forget about the rest. They don't like even, you know, canons because canons also 
are summarized using words. You could imitate and mimic holy acts without being holy. Words don't mean anything. The highest form of prayer is the wordless. It comes from the, the Hesychastic movement. In Russia, it reached its apogee in parts of Moscow and definitely Novgorod. Novgorod in particular, because there you had an oligarchy. You had what you could loosely call a trading mercantile middle-class society based on money. And the church kind of stuck out there. And since you really can't talk sense into someone so motivated, especially when it influences the way they perceive the world, the only thing you could do is mock them. Ultimately, all of this is to save them. Now, I almost don't have to say this, but the phenomenon of fake fools almost destroyed the institution, if it can be called an institution. People who actually were insane, who for whatever reason would mimic the symbolic preaching of these people. And really only those who themselves were holy could tell the difference. They were the freest group of people. Of course, they were homeless. They dressed in rags. St. Basil the Blessed, who St. Basil's Cathedral in Moscow is named after, according to foreign observers, was almost completely naked in the Russian winters. Giles Fletcher, among others, who mentioned that about him, and they don't know how he could pull that off. In public, they can be absolutely vile. Sometimes they crash into churches, they start throwing things around, screaming and yelling, knocking things over. But the true fool, fool for Christ's sake, is completely and entirely sane. In Russia in particular, they could take whatever they wanted. Of course, they didn't have a home. They were almost always foreigners. They had no connection, very much like the prophets of the Old Testament. They had no connection with the society to which they were speaking. And right up to the Tsar, especially Ivan the Terrible, was very much scared of these guys. And when he made a mistake, they confronted him directly. Now the stories change as to what happened, but the basic structure is the same. Because these people, and Ivan believed this probably more than anybody, lived outside of the phenomenal world. They lived in the noumenal world, and therefore, both literally and figuratively, and theologically, they were the freest people, freer than any monarch. Now in Russia, prior to the Petrine era, anybody with public mental illness or just, you know, retardation, which wasn't nearly as common then as it is now, but they were automatically, whether holy or not, they were taken as living in a different world and were respected. It's confined to the Orthodox Church to a great extent because of the apophatic approach, trying to understand God via negation, and even that's highly limited. That mentality also is very suspicious about reason. I mean, the basis of that whole school of thought 
is that because our terminology comes from our daily life and our human experiences, it's extremely difficult to use those terms that work in our context and try to um, attach it to, to God. And there's no one who accepted that point of view more than um, Yudhidivik, the, the holy fools. They hated and hated respectable Christianity. They were of the opinion, at least by implication, that Christianity is supposed to be offensive. If everyone around you tells you that you're you're doing fine and you're a holy man, you're a good man, and this lunatic comes out of nowhere and starts making fun of that pretension, you're going to remember it. And you're going to be mocked. This is, this is one of the few times that laughter shows up as somehow a, a useful theological category. It's extremely rare. There's a difference between making fun of somebody and mocking someone. Mocking is mendacious. It's designed to hurt somebody. Now, friends make fun of each other, poking fun with you. You know, that's, that's normal. That's not meant to be harmful. Now, these guys were mocking. Sometimes they would act out, like you see in the prophecies of Ezekiel and Isaiah, especially Ezekiel, where they act out certain things because that's the only way that they could that they could get their point across. I mean, our opponents and our friends, we, they've heard, to a great extent, our arguments many times. You know, what, what more can you do? Foolishness is freedom. And it's not just that the words that we use in rational propositions come from just human experience, but of course they're unstable on top of all that. Words conceal more than they reveal. But they're also the creation of social power. What we consider reasonable, sometimes it's just a very lazy average, what's considered normal. And there is nothing normal about the, the message of the gospel. Now, Russians in that era, 16th century especially, they were aware that these men were holy. In public, they did everything they could to keep people from following them. They didn't want followers. They weren't trying to create a school. They were prophets in, in a very broad sense. In secret, they were extremely holy and ascetic. And every once in a while, they would tell somebody what they're doing. And only after the fool's death was it revealed what he was actually doing. Sometimes it was hard to tell them apart. They refused anyone who might be considered a follower. Anything that would increase their pride and sense of holiness, they completely rejected because that's a slippery slope. Ivan the Terrible. Now, there's a few stories about him being confronted. They talk about different fools. They all, you know, they're real. And the, the narrative structure is pretty much the same. He was con uh, confronted by, well, the accounts vary. Nicola, there's a few others. 
on the outskirts of Peskov, as he was involved in smashing the oligarchy in the various uh, regions of Russia. But by the time Peter came around, Peter openly banned them. And it shouldn't surprise you that the fools eventually went over to the old belief. In fact, even the Bishop uh, Paul of Kolumna uh, was a fool, became a fool. And this is one of the reasons that Nikon killed him. And he even, Peter and his successors in the 18th century, even banned the veneration of St. Basil the Blessed. The, the epistemology here is that human thought is unstable. Human beings can't penetrate the Trinity, essentially. And in fact, they can't penetrate anything, essentially. Knowledge ultimately comes down to utility. How can we use something, which isn't knowledge at all? That from the dawn of Christianity, or even in, even in the Old Testament, in the prophetic movement, the ascetic is, by his very set of priorities, a madman. Dostoevsky brings this up a few times. Uh, one of my favorite novels, The Idiot, um, has a little bit of this. Ultimately, when something holy is placed in an environment that is unholy, they're going to look insane. So, the fool is at war with what we can call rule following. That, well, I'm doing okay because I'm following the canon and I'm following the rules that have been laid down. That is, according to them, the absolute opposite of what, of what Christianity is. The absolute minimum, and even that's iffy, is formulated in words and laws. The content is practically infinite. While being a man perpetually humiliated, especially young people, you know, they beat them up and stuff, you know, go to stores and wreck it, you know, knock stuff all over the place. They also defend and stand up for the humiliated, which meant a little bit more in Muscovite Russia than, than it did elsewhere. And ultimately, they, were, they weren't allowed in any places where decent people would go, because decent people would never act like that. They were seen, especially in Russia, outside of time and space. They were outside of culture. Again, they lived in the noumenal world, the spiritual world, not the phenomenal world of cause and effect. They were confronting standardized piety. Rule following can be deadly because it leads to complacency. Now, it's like the old um, Soviet patriarchate. Well, we're following all the canons, so we're okay. As if that by itself has anything to do with holiness. They would accuse, they would radicalize, and from that comes the elevation of the human personality. Complacency, even in the most Christian and healthiest societies, is a perpetual problem. They loathed vanity. You notice I'm using a lot of superlatives. 
They didn't just dislike something, they hated it. And they would do things, including parody these people. They didn't have a form. It was all pure spiritual content. And only a certain group could understand the symbols. A fool today wouldn't make any sense because Westerners are completely illiterate when it comes to symbolism. So by implication, these guys believe that the symbol is far more uh, useful than words. So to use an example, music exists because this, you know, it expresses things that words cannot. In fact, so many of the best or the worst feelings anyone has really can't be put into words. They dressed in rags and sometimes in absolutely nothing at all, especially back then, where clothing tended to signify your class. It does so now, but not formally. It does so practically, you know, uh, as a matter of custom. But back then, you knew who someone was by their clothing. They put up a mirror to the world. They were living in perpetual exile. It wasn't like they had a, a low social status. They had no social status. It's a life and death struggle against pride. Because pride is the root of sin. And pride is vulnerable to how others think of you. That is deadly. So at an absolute minimum, these guys made sure that they were hated by everybody. That's one of the reasons that they would commit sins. They were, I mean, the, the prophets sometimes were told to sin, like Hosea. You know, it all comes down to your intentions, mens rea. They didn't have, you know, the uh, desire for crime. They just needed to do it. Their heart wasn't in it, but they knew it had to be done as a means of mocking pretense. They didn't bathe. They were usually pretty filthy on purpose. They hated things like common sense. Everyone knows that this is true. Everyone knows that this kind of common sense idea was something that they would mock openly. Superficiality. It was authority, and they had tremendous authority in Muscovite Russia to the point where Ivan the Terrible was, was feared these guys. Nearly all the fools were prophets. They're different from the Old Testament prophets, but they certainly have many similarities. They see the world for what it is because they have no status, they have no responsibilities, they have no place. They come from absolutely out of nowhere and literally get in the face of people, spit at them, hit them as a way to finally wake these idiots up. It's sort of like when someone's hysterical and you grab them by the shoulders and shake them. How do you, how do you communicate with someone who's really drunk? They tend to appear, and of course they existed in Byzantium too. Andrew the Fool is, is always featured on the Holy Protection icons, but it never quite became the institution, you know, for lack of a better word, that it did in, in, in Moscow. Because they're completely isolated, they could see things that everyone else can't, and that's why 
they have somewhat of a prophetic purpose. They appear in times of moral decline, especially moral decline among the powerful. Now, their sustenance came from just taking stuff. Throughout that era, the consolidation of the, of the Moscow state, they just go into a store and grab something. And they didn't care what it was. They ate meat during the fast on purpose, showing that this isn't this isn't our purpose here. This, the, the, the prohibition of meat is symbolic of something else. Meat's actually very good for you. But that's not what that's about. Now, it's true. The church, who at the best of times barely tolerated the fool, it really was the state or the monarch that protected them, it will eventually turn against the fool. They were isolated to northern Russia, and the problem was they attracted a lot of frauds, both actually really insane people and people who just didn't want to do anything. And while I could take up the mantle of the fool, of course, always were homeless. You really can't, How can you hurt somebody who has nothing? You can't do anything to them. They kill them. I mean, that how you know that seems such an anticlimax for these guys. They were meant to be irritating because the truth always is. They were meant to be divisive because the truth always is. They were socially disruptive on purpose. People get so used to their routine that it takes a pretty severe shock to break that hypnotic trance. You know, the hypnosis is really just a, a complete and total concentration on one thing to the exclusion of everything else. And people get so wrapped up in the routine of their daily life that they don't realize they're in a routine. They're anarchists um, in the best sense of that term. They lived in the symbolic and spiritual world. In Russia, of course, they eventually were called blessed, which is why the great St. Basil the Blessed has that, has that title. The Russian root urad means um, something like ugly or, or um, deformed or crippled, something like that. So it's only used in a very general sense. It's certainly not used in a literal sense. The term, the Russian term, Yudhadeva, is really the, the, the eccentric simpleton. Now, these men were not simpletons. They weren't big fans of education, but they certainly weren't simpletons. They were foolish. I mean, the word comes down to being stupid in order to make a point. I can't get into the connection with the court jester, the joker, you know, uh, in the West. There's some superficial connections, but that's about it. There's been people who've tried to find fools in, in, in the Roman church, in the West, and they're kind of, you know, yeah, they have certain commonalities, but they never reach the level of, um, of whether it be the, the Byzantines or the, or the Russians. They always drew a crowd because their behavior was offensive. It was meant to be disruptive. You have to get shocked out of your complacency. St. Simeon of Emesa, who died in 660, of course, not a, not a Russian, long before then, he defecated in public. A bunch of them actually did stuff like that. And then they throw it around. 
this is what your life is. They wouldn't say that. They only used foul language and they said crazy things like, you know, Charles Manson. Of course, Charles Manson didn't say anything. I've actually paid attention to him. He doesn't say anything. He's, a, he's as phony as they come. But these guys would remind you of him, although they were saying something, if you had the proper mentality to understand. He would, um, he would go into women's bathhouses. The few times they would, I mean, really, it's, you know, whether they bathe there or not, doesn't matter. They would do it on purpose. Their friends, if they had friends at all, would be prostitutes, people, um, people who were actually insane. You can't hurt a man that doesn't have anything, including a reputation and status. Of course, the modernization of Russia meant the end of the foolish phenomenon. Certain people in the 19th century, you even had a few in the Soviet era. They didn't last long. But the more modernized the state became, the less room there was for the fools, again, except in the old belief. When the lunatic asylums were imported from Europe, under mostly under Catherine II, but of course after that, we all know Chekhov's Warden Number 6, one of my favorite uh, plays, and the success rate of these are extremely low. And if anyone had the vocation, so to speak, of becoming a fool, that's where you ended up. This is what Christ means by the poor in spirit. In Russia, mentally ill, cripples, people who are just stupid through no fault of their own. Madness was a source of power. It was seen as an opening to God. And because we're hypnotized... We don't have that opening. Everything is administered for us. And they, they won't even say that it has a place. It doesn't have a place. It leads to laziness. So you didn't have to be a holy fool to be venerated in Russia. You just had to be a fool. Someone who couldn't help it. But to institutionalize them happened centuries later was to destroy what they brought to the world. Because even if you weren't a holy fool, the insane, and I know this has happened to me personally, alters your, your view of things. I grew up amongst the mentally handicapped. I'm not being funny. You know, I had my cousin and, and people who uh, were retarded. Um, when I was very young, I know how to talk to them. It, it takes a certain, it, it's, not that, it's not that difficult. But you're never quite the same again. This belief that you matter because you're held in esteem and the estimation of others, this is, in the foolish tradition, a, a way to hell. And it's very difficult. I mean, trying to live not caring what people think of you, that's extremely, extremely, extremely difficult. I mean, being nutty is one thing, but even even dressing like a normal person is 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 way too much conformism for them. You show up to Walmart in your underwear, screaming about usury by by beating up a bank teller. I mean, that's I guess as close as we can get to um, a contemporary version of this. But you will just be arrested. 
there was always room for the four in Muscovite Russia. What a four can do is what none of us can do. Because even even someone like me, in social situations, you know, I'm not I'm not I don't have my finger in someone's face. You gotta you gotta give a little bit just to have kind of a, a normal life. But that was way too much freedom, as far as the the fool is concerned. You're never off. You don't have and we're not supposed to have a normal life. We all look like conformists compared to them. There are some, I don't know if it's Lossky or Fedotov, who say that the, the phenomenon of foolishness, and of course a capital F, is reason. It does have its rationality, certainly. It's not arbitrary in that, you know, it's not random. That's one way you could tell the difference between an actual nut and um, someone who's pretending on the one hand and an actual fool on the other. There's a method to the madness, as, as we say. Remember, the fool always is not just sane. He's, he's a perfectly normal guy. This is an act. But this is a very special calling. But they define foolishness as rationality and reason just without any a priori ideas, without any connection to the normal experiences someone has. It's reason without without objects. But scandalizing, mocking others, this is not a bad thing, especially when there's good reason to do it. Now, no one's going to accept that. The people who you're going after aren't going to accept that. But that's that's great. That's the whole point. If they would accept in humility what this guy's doing, well, they wouldn't need it. The angrier they get, and they get angry because they know it's true. And given Russia under Ivan, or the Ivans, you couldn't touch these guys. And it didn't matter what they did. Scandalizing others is a very good thing. Somebody, you know, who conforms to the world while claiming to be a Christian, you know, they've heard, you know, the scriptural arguments over and over again. Orthodox people, they've heard so many of the important church fathers, they've heard the liturgy over and over and over and over again. It gets dull through repetition. They can't see the either the hypnosis or, or, the, or the delusion that they may be, uh, may be working under. So, you can't reason with that person because they think that they're perfectly rational. You have to shock them into coherence. Living the ascetic life in a city is very difficult. And don't forget, this isn't just about uh, social life. This is also an attack on traditional asceticism as well. Madness, holy or otherwise, sets one free from any social responsibility. If you're as low as you can go, no one can hurt you. Anything that someone can do to you is an improvement to what you are, prison especially. So when the world is overtaken by sin and evil and stupidity and irrationality that masquerades as holiness and reason, then virtue appears to the vulgar as madness. The more overtly absurd 
the postmodern West becomes, the more dangerous we become for no other reason than, even if we didn't say anything, the way we act, the nature of our priorities, is a standing, call this an existential threat. In other words, it's not, it's not communicated in words just by your very existence. Knowledge and the apophatic idea is always contingent. It could always be revised. One of the early um, fools, he died in 1303 in Russia, St. Procopius of Ustio. Again, he was a foreigner. He was not ethnic Russian whatsoever. In fact, he was German. He was a German merchant. He confronted the oligarchy openly. He knew exactly what he was doing. Novgorod to him was Sodom and Gomorrah, something he said over and over again. And it was precisely at a place like that, based around money and hierarchies being based around money, the church has its work cut out for it. But Novgorod was the, Piskov too at the time, was a place where you can profit from the labor of others mercilessly and still see yourself as a respectable citizen. This is something that, that you know, capitalist merchant-based societies do. And it's really easy to be lulled into complacency in that respect. So he would do things like he would, he would cry in public. All of these huge demonstrative gestures. And especially the common people. And especially the poor. I, you know, that goes without saying almost. See these men. It's mostly men. There's a few women. They can perceive the energy of God directly. The meaning, grace, without concepts, i.e. without words, which encapsulate concepts. And they took this nominal, how do you translate that into words? You can't. The closest you can come is translating that access into symbols. Symbols for them usually are acts. Cursing, swearing, going into church and knocking stuff over, screaming and yelling. This, I mean, that you know, they were pushing the limits here. But they would do this, and I'm being charitable here, they would do this when it was clear that the behavior of these people um, and how they approached the faith was a matter of routine. It was normal and respectable. It's like your modernist orthodox today going to the regime, seeing, see how harmless I am? This is just a, a rich tradition that we're, that we're a part of. This is exactly the sort of person conforming deep down like a narcissist. They know what they're doing, but they can't face it. These guys make them face it. And they make them face it in a way, I mean, you know, if I could argue with these people rationally. I could write an essay for them. But they could interpret that any way they want. They're words. They could rebut me, not, not even do a good job of it, but they can make at least themselves feel better. See, oh, there's more than one opinion on this stuff. It's completely different when the holy fools get involved because nothing they do is mediated. Everything is immediate. 
they're meant to be jarring. And the way to do that is through sometimes volume, property damage, cursing and swearing, running up to someone naked, screaming. It doesn't even have to be coherent. If there's any hope for these people at all, at a very deep level, they'll understand. They don't randomly pick people. This is a slightly tamer version of the Saw movies. In, 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 a, in a weird way, I've only seen the first three or four. The psychological methods of torture and possibly death are connected to what's wrong with these people. What, what have they done? And that's why it's so satisfying. Well, rather than building a mechanism, they simply use their bodies and their voice to psychologically do the same thing as much as, as much as possible. No one voluntarily, do, again, these guys are perfectly normal. No one voluntarily does this. It's, it's unimaginable to, to live in such a way where you are relentlessly pushing the idea that you don't have a single redeemable quality. And, and if people start thinking, oh, that's a holy man, he's acting that way, you know, talking like I am now, they'll, you know, throw a rock at an icon or something, or smash one to pieces. Oh, wait a minute, no, maybe he's not that. Because the minute people start saying that, you start having followings. This is extremely raw. So if no one voluntarily lives this way, then it's God who calls them. In the Old Testament, the prophets are called by God and they argue and they bitch and moan about it because they, don't, they know what's going to happen to them. They don't want to do this. They have to go into a strange city and confront some of the most powerful people around about what idiots they are. Um, Socrates was a, a very tame version of this, except, of course, he used reason for the most part. Reason was meant to overthrow the, the sophistry, you know, both literal and metaphorical, the people he dealt with. Diogenes, when you talked in the Stoicism thing we did, we talked about Diogenes. There is some superficial connections there, too, because the cynics would deliberately, from a psychological point of view, do a lot of this same stuff. Their motivations weren't as clear. But the... Those who are, who are the most holy are grieving and suffering. They feel almost personally the pain uh, of, of what's going to happen to these people in the future. You would never live this way. I mean, it's, it's misery from morning until night. The only relief they ever got was to tell an occasional person, you know, this is, this is an act. Here's, here's what I'm doing. Please don't tell anybody. And they always had plausible deniability. You know, Russia was a paradoxical idea because they were seen as holy. And that's where the concept of blaspheming and stuff came in, hopefully to throw these people off the trail. To behave this way, to shock people this way, is to force a, a crisis, to force a certain um, crisis of, of, of your own confidence. 
But really, they're bringing asceticism back to its roots because the earliest monasteries were considered foolish. They're not supposed to be socially useful. You know, monasteries usually are. But the fools had a big problem with being a part of a social order. It's so easy to get to, to be lulled into this hypnotic state. These are the guys who, I mean, to put it very, very mildly, say the things that we want to say to people, but we can't. And of course, they're pointing to us saying, well, why can't you? What's going to happen? And if you think something terrible is going to happen and God's going to abandon you, then maybe you're not a Christian at all. Now, they won't put it so nicely. But for people who've heard it all before, there has to be another layer and another uh, level of communication. Now, St. Athanasius of Alexandria doesn't directly deal with foolishness because foolishness was already kind of built in implicitly in the, uh, in the earliest Egyptian and Syrian monastics. When Athanasius is talking about the, the, the wise of the world, you know, the, the, the Corinthians uh, citations I did in the beginning, well, who is he referring to? Athanasius says it's the merchant, it's the businessman in particular. So we're talking about the wisdom of the world. We're not talking about Plato and Aristotle. We're talking about utilitarianism. Um, the difference between reason on the one hand and purely instrumental logic on the other. Instrumental logic is simply attaching means to ends. Reason is about ends, is about ultimate purposes. Instrumental logic is not reason. A criminal can be rational, in quotes, in how he defrauds people. But with a capital law, it's not rational at all. It's logical. This is how these, these people act. Animals hunt in a very logical way, but they don't have reason. Defrauding others, this is what these people are good at. This is why Novgorod was the hatchery for a lot of these people. The usurer is an excellent example of the wise of the world. Wisdom is a term being used here in a, in a mocking way. These men fear the weakness of words. Because even if you're moved, someone gives you a pamphlet and, and you're actually moved by it, well, you're going to very conveniently not see the harsh and difficult parts of it. You know, one of the first things when Luther tried to translate the New Testament into German was the peasant uprising because they, they took what little bits and pieces there served their interests at the moment. That's just how it is. That's why there's 10 million sects of Protestants. They could cherry pick what they want, reject the rest, and create a, a megachurch somewhere. And it's usually what's you know convenient given the uh, social biases of the day. Now, these people wouldn't understand the nature of the fool. They're complete nominalists and empiricists. That's the foundation of uh, Protestantism, going back to, to Luther himself.
but Orthodox people can. No one likes to be confronted this way. I mean, if you're doing something wrong and someone gets in your face and screams and yells and you know they're right, that's very, very hard to handle. We're talking about as adults now, not as kids. We know they're right. So what are we going to do? We're going to scream back at them? You're going to look even more foolish. Christianity is meant to be offensive. That's some of the great proofs for the truth of Christianity is that Christ alienated everybody. What kind of a way is that to build a religion? He went against the expectations of every group in society, except your handful of eccentrics, the people, the highways and byways, you got to go grab people for the, because the people who were invited to the banquet didn't show. The fool is meant to bring about shame in people. Nothing is arbitrary or random in what they're doing. It's like the Saw movies. The people who are put in these contraptions are there because they did something. They weren't just grabbed off the street. He, you know, this is, this is a very physical aspect of that with different motivations and different presentation, but, but it's a very similar concept. If we are perpetually in sin and every action we commit to is in fact self-regarding, then what's left? Foolishness is the only thing that's left. If reason fails, if facts fail, if people just don't want to hear, if they're in, in the neurotic sense, in denial, what these guys tend to do then is project everything that, that the fool is, is pointing out with these people and projecting it back onto the fool. The fool's a perfect person to do this with because no one cares. Somebody can manifest every aspect externally of holiness and piety and be a total fraud. And it's extremely difficult to tell the difference. Laughter, as I mentioned before, is a weapon. You don't hear much about laughter in orthodoxy, certainly not in the ascetic literature. But laughter is a weapon in the same sense that parody is a weapon. It, it creates distance. Laughing at somebody, you know, that's not a rational thing. You're not refuting them. Um, you know, it's like in the comment section on YouTube or, or Facebook, someone puts out a stupid argument and you just write underneath it, LOL. That's a lot more powerful than I think we give it credit for. People do that sort of thing. Now, they don't feel like writing out a whole refutation. And maybe they know it's wrong, but don't really know quite why in detail it's wrong. So that's what they do. And the guy probably has heard the counter-arguments anyway before. So what are your options? Breaking that chain of reasoning, as hypnotic though it is, is what these guys do. Any shock to the system can bring about tremendous change and reflection. Well, these guys were bringing it to you. Loudly. The victim of laughter and parody, we're talking mockery here, has no choice. I mean, he's going to hate you, but all the better. He may just project all of this stuff back onto you again. But deep down, unless he's a sociopath, Deep down, he knows you're right. He knows that he deserves to be mocked. Everything is relativized when you, when you laugh. 
when you parody, you know, parody, you take a, uh, a, 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 a dominant property of something and you exaggerate it, make it the dominant thing. There's a lot of excellent parody out there, maybe for the wrong reason. And we know almost instinctively good parody versus a weak parody. It has to be something, there has to be a tremendous amount of truth to it. You can't just say they're stupid. They have to have a weakness. And that weakness can be exploited. But to point and laugh and mock was something these people did all the time. And especially when their target was very stuffy and, and you know, pseudo-pious and is in all the regalia, whatever office he might have. To have people argue against you, that's, that's one thing. But to have people point and laugh, that's a completely different thing. And you're guaranteed to elicit tremendous anger from the person. It's not just that these people may be wrong. They're being humiliated in front of a lot of people. And this kind of behavior is a negation of social roles and social hierarchy. Because those things distract from God's law. St. Isaac, the cave dweller who died in 1090, probably the first fool in Russia. He failed in your traditional ascetic practices in the monastery and had a break, had a mental break where he became a fool, non-voluntary. He, he again, perfectly sane. But as he did make progress, foolishness was a way to avoid praise and hence complacency. Normality is the enemy of the fool. They, they confronted the passions by negating them in, in, this, in this seemingly crazy way. In Moscow, especially Ivan the Terrible, uh, was one of the biggest promoters of the idea of the fool. He even, you know, they were equal in status to the Tsar himself. He held them in deep reverence. He was, he was seen as a check on the pomposity and, and pageantry of the monarchy. 1570, there was an alleged pogrom uh, from Ivan the Terrible in Peskov. That, that's probably legendary. But Nikola Peskov confronted him, mocked him, caused him somehow to fall off his horse, ordered everyone to keep their hands off of him, called Ivan a bloodsucker. Ivan tried to be respectful, and this guy used the worst, filthiest language to attack him. You see, the way Ivan viewed it, if this guy can maintain this level of holiness and humility while still eating meat, during Lent on purpose and in your face, hoping that you'll you'll slap him or or, or you know try to try to attack him for it. That means this is the pinnacle of holiness. He doesn't need those strictures. He's beyond those strictures. Now you have another story, Ivan versus uh, Arson of Novgorod. It's it's the standard story. He's kind of the standard fool. The story's full of holes. Sometimes it's Basil, <clears throat> St. Basil the Blessed, sometimes it's Nicola. The stories are, are but, but the structure is identical. 
and Ivan, regardless of what the truth is, specifically how these fools confronted Ivan, certainly it happened. And Ivan was never the same. And he backed off whatever he was doing. In 1584, great Tsar Theodore, who was seen as mentally deficient, that, that's in the eyes of his enemies. It just meant that he was without guile. He received word that the miracles around the gravesite of St. Basil the Blessed is, is tremendous. And this was the origin of, of the cathedral in August of 1588. Now, I mentioned Giles Fletcher. He wrote on the Russo Commonwealth, I think in 1589. I've read it. Many of you have come across it. He was the um, emissary of Queen Elizabeth of Britain. He has a whole section on the fools. That's how prominent they were under Ivan. He, he connects them to some of the um, extreme ascetics of India. Gymnosophists he, he uses. That, that, that's vaguely attached to, to Hinduism. They were naked and unkempt in wintertime. That, this is your a foreign observer saying this. They brought chaos wherever they went. Full freedom to speak and do whatever they want, no matter how vile. They were few in number. The real ones were few in number. He even mentions Novgorod as, as the center. And he really associates them with the Old Testament prophet. Now, I mentioned before that under the best of conditions, the church barely tolerated these people. And in 1646, Patriarch Joseph of Moscow banned them from churches. One of the reasons, well, the new rite after Nikon, the fools, you didn't have fools in the new rite, in, in the Nikonian church. The fools then went to the old belief. And in fact, you know, the wanderers had some of this, uh, some of this, the most extreme of the, of the priestless. As I mentioned, Bishop uh, Paul Coloma became a fool in protest. And as I mentioned, uh, Nikon's men beat him to death. The Greeks, most of them phony, who showed up at that synod, that altered the rite and banned the old rite, etc. They despised the fools. They didn't understand because the fools were their opponents. So, of course, the synod infamously of 1666-1667 condemned the fools. They, were, they came up with excuses to condemn them, like, uh, well, in the books that we have, fools don't normally wear chains, which, by the way, isn't true. So we see someone with, tra uh, with chains, they're not real. Yeah, it's true. There was this inflation of some of these guys. Some of them were more obvious than others. But the true holy fool, they, they, these were very few. And after the new rite was promulgated, St. Pavel the Blessed's um, commemoration declined. In fact, for a long time, it was... Um, confined only to the cathedral in Moscow. And of course, it shouldn't shock you that Peter I banned the phenomenon entirely. And the reasons that he gave were, were also unsurprising. Fyodor Prokopovich, 
despised the fool because the fools were aiming. This is exactly the sort of thing that the holy fool came into existence to challenge is that type. Peter didn't understand that they have no social role. They have no responsibility. They live off, off of others. And most of all, they criticize those in power. You could imagine the field day that the old believer fools had in the phenomenon of St. Petersburg. They had to repeat the ban from churches in 1731. And foolishness declined to almost nothing. In the middle of the 18th century, even the commemoration of the fools in any kind of public arena was largely banned. How, how this was enforced, I don't know. Localities where the fool was from, maybe is a different story. And that comes out of the commission and the old belief, uh, 1745, 1757. And they use the excuse that there's too many fakes, so we're going to ban the entire phenomenon. Symbolically, the, the clinic, the asylum, was used to, among other things, destroy the idea of foolishness. In the Muscovite era, anybody, the mentally handicapped, I mean, so long as it's not their fault, the mentally handicapped were seen as living in a different reality. They were holy people, and they needed to be treated with not just respect, the utmost respect. They don't live in the same world as we do. And there's some, some truth to that. But the end of the 18th century, the insane asylum um, finished the phenomenon, again, with the exception of, of the old belief. Obviously, the higher clergy, almost without exception, despised the holy fool. The prophetic utterances always opposed, especially the over-institutionalization of the church in the Petrine era. The only Soviet fool that I know, 1928, uh, Alexei Voroshin was tortured in the mental institutions, the USSR, and was, was finally died in 1937. The clinic also always had an ideological function there. But in Russia, these men opened a window because there was a method here. Only, only a few people could really see these aren't arbitrary actions of, of a raving lunatic. They're not. If you understand what they're doing, it's very rational. But it's communicated in a way beyond uh, the capacity of most people to understand because they're hypnotic themselves. The whole notion of foolishness was to save people, to save people from their own laziness and stupidity. They were able to succeed where the intellect failed. Unfettered freedom. Even the most you know, convinced nonconformist sometimes has to watch what he says. You don't want to offend people for the sake of offending them. These guys didn't care. It was the ultimate expression of the rejection of the world. The rejection of the world taken to its extreme. Now, of course, only a tiny handful of people can ever live this way. But it is not voluntary. And it is a legitimate, holy institution. Whether it has a role now, other than the kind of the methods that, you know, clown, clown world kind of comments, 
it's doubtful. But sometimes words and logic and reason and facts and reasonableness and calm and all of this, you know, dispassionate analysis fails. Sometimes they need to be shocked out of their own laziness and stupidity. And that was the role of the Holy Fool in Russia and elsewhere. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Bye-bye.